Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad we could have this time together to study God's Word. Today we are continuing our study of the Gospel written by Mark. Now our lessons have dealt with how Jesus is Lord. Today we're looking at Mark chapter 8 verse 27 through actually chapter 9 verse 1. Now in this section, Jesus has confronted his disciples with the question, Who am I? And at first, the disciples tell him what the crowds are saying. You know, some say you are John the Baptist. Others say you are Elijah or Jeremiah, maybe one of the other prophets. Then Peter speaks up for the rest of the disciples, and he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So it appears that Jesus' disciples have finally gotten the point that Jesus is the Messiah. But then Peter goes on to show, while the disciples recognize Jesus as the Messiah, they want to make Jesus into their type of Messiah. They want Jesus to be the Messiah that they've always imagined. When Jesus begins telling them what will actually occur because He is Messiah, that He will be arrested and crucified, placed on the cross, and then that he will rise again. Peter pulls him aside and begins to rebuke him. Peter tells him, Never, never will this happen to you, Lord. And Jesus has to tell him, Peter, you're not thinking as God thinks. You're thinking like a man. In today's lesson, we find Jesus explaining a key truth about his kingdom, about what it will mean to take part in this kingdom. The disciples, they were picturing Jesus' kingdom as an earthly empire. Instead of Rome ruling the earth, it would be Israel. Israel would reclaim the glory days of King David, this time under the leadership of an even greater king, under the leadership of Jesus, the actual Son of God. But Jesus wanted them to understand this was not the way that His kingdom would operate. Before we get into the lesson, however, let's begin with a word of prayer. I want to pray the prayer from Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul is speaking here, and he says, So this is my prayer, that your love will flourish, and that you will not only love much, but well. Learn to love appropriately. You need to use your head and test your feelings, so that your love is sincere and intelligent, not sentimental gush making Jesus Christ attractive to all, getting everyone involved in the glory and praise of God. Amen. In today's lesson, Jesus spells out how His kingdom will operate. And He tells His disciples something that seems to make no sense whatsoever. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now I'm sure when the disciples hear this, They're left scratching their heads. What in the world could Jesus mean by this? But Jesus wanted them to understand. His kingdom was not about using power in the way the Romans did. It wasn't about crushing your enemies. Instead, His kingdom was about the voluntary giving up of power, giving up control by finding your life uh, or finding your life by surrendering it. Now, Peter and the disciples recognized Jesus was the Messiah, but again, they insisted He be the Messiah that they wanted. 
And today, our biggest problem in the church, we gladly recognize Jesus as Messiah, but many times we insist that He be the Messiah that we want. And what happens is we end up with a, an experience that's often described as moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's moralistic in the sense that we feel like God wants people to be good, but by being good, we mean being nice, being fair, uh, being tolerant of each other. It's therapeutic. We feel that the goal of salvation and the goal of being a Christian is to be happy, to feel good about yourself. The goal is to live a fulfilled life, but it's a life that's self-centered. And finally, it's deists. Uh, we have no problem in believing that God exists, in believing that God created this world. But we have the idea that God has retreated from this world. He's watching over it from a distance. God is not particularly involved in our lives unless we have a problem that we need His help. And so we end up believing in God, but a very limited type of God. Now, what we end up with then is a salvation that's centered around us. It's not centered around the kingdom of heaven. And this kind of Christianity, it has no effect on our society. We are told we are to be the salt and the light of this world. But this religion has no effect of being salt and light. Uh, I found a quote that talked about postmodern belief, and it says, Postmodern, the postmodern age makes Jesus our mascot, the one who affirms our favored causes and affirms us in our deepest selves. In other words, we want a Jesus who likes the same things we like, who favors what we favor. And many times for us, it's the status quo because most of us are comfortable with keeping things the way they are. And so we want a, a Jesus, a Messiah, who confirms the status quo. Now, this type of Christianity also has no transforming effect on us. The danger is that we wind up prosperant, reliant upon ourselves, very similar to the Laodicean church in Revelation. In Revelation, Jesus describes this church by saying, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, and unclothed. This is from Revelation chapter 3. Now, when we adopt a, a religion that does not call upon us to lose our lives, we miss out on what we describe as God's preferential option for the poor. In Scripture, we seem to see a pattern where over and over again, God stresses that it's actually a blessing to be poor. Philip Yancey writes, When the Beatitudes say that it's the poor the hungry, the persecuted, it's these that are blessed, that Jesus is being literal here. The poor have an innate advantage over those who are more comfortable and more self-sufficient. 
he goes on to write, Dependency, humility, simplicity, cooperation, these are qualities greatly prized in the spiritual life, but extremely elusive for people who live in comfort. So when we only want a Messiah that is, looks the way that we want the Messiah to look, that ask of us only what we want the Messiah to ask of us, this is the type of religion that we wind up with, a religion that doesn't challenge the status quo, that instead of, of letting us be on fire for God, leaves us lukewarm as we are content to go about our daily lives. The first point that Jesus is making here in this lesson is that the key to the kingdom is taking up your cross. Scripture tells us, Then he called the crowds to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus is using crucifixion here as a metaphor. And what does he mean? To take up your cross is to take up the means of your execution. It's to take up the method by which you will die. The condemned criminal in Jesus' day was often required to carry his own cross. You remember, Jesus himself was required to do this. So, to take up your cross was to surrender yourself to death. Paul uses this metaphor, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then in Romans 6, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, when those who were listening to Jesus, when they heard Jesus say this, they would know what he meant. This phrase, take up your cross, for us it's lost a lot of its power. We've actually never seen someone crucified. For us, it's, it's a metaphor, it's, it's a literary expression. But for those in Jesus' day, crucifixions would have been something they were all too familiar with. Many of them would have seen crucifixions actually taking place. They would have watched the condemned man take his last walk, carrying that cross on his back. They had seen these men, bloody, crucified, dying in agony on that cross. And, and crucifixion was a, a very uh, tough way to die. Many times it might take literally several days for them to die. And so the sheer awfulness of crucifixion would have been something that was immediately familiar to them. It's not something they would take lightly. And so when they hear Jesus say this, take up your cross and follow me, they would have grasped the seriousness of what he meant. So how do we see this? How is this actually lived out in our lives? Well, it is to die. Now, not a physical death. It's not our body that dies, but we are putting ourselves, uh, our actual self, our autonomy, our self-control, our authority to do what we want to do. This is what we're putting to death. So we're putting to death our own desires, our own plans. We're putting to death the idea of living for ourselves and for what pleases us. This is what Jesus says when he, when he, when he says, take up the cross. 
put these things to death. Now, when we look at this, why does this work? How does crucifixion actually help us to gain our lives? And what we are talking about here is a mechanism for holiness. In verse 35, Jesus tells us, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake and the gospel will find it. Now, we have to remember what Jesus' gospel was. His gospel was the good news that Jesus was God's anointed, the Messiah, that God was establishing his kingdom in this world through Jesus. True life is found only in Jesus, in becoming part of this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And then Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So Jesus clearly ties this idea of new life to being part of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus makes it clear here that holding on to your life, doing everything you can to keep this life, to save it for yourself, will only cause you to lose it in the end. It's only when you lose this life, when you give it up for Christ in the gospel, that you end up finding true life. More graphically, Jesus says, to get true life, you must crucify the life you have now. So the question is why? Why do we need to give up our lives in order to enter the kingdom of heaven and find real life? Well, the key to understanding this, uh, that understanding that to enter the kingdom we must give up our lives, is to understand we must be holy. This kingdom is God's kingdom, and God is holy. If we are to live in His presence, if we are to live in communion with Him, we too must be holy. Now, we can see this all throughout the Old Testament. It's full of commands to be holy as God is holy. One of the most familiar of these is Leviticus 11:44, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. We also see it in the New Testament, 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. So what does this mean? What does it mean to be holy? A lot of times we get the wrong idea of holiness. We, we think about holiness in terms of how we act. That is, to be holy is somehow to act perfectly, to be saintly. So we think of a holy person as some kind of super good person, a super righteous person. And so we base our understanding of holiness on what we are. But at its core, Holiness is not about us, it's about God. The central idea of holy is that God is separate, God is unique. And so when the Bible tells us God is holy, it isn't telling us God is super good, it's telling us God is uniquely different from any other. He is one of a kind, totally above, totally superior to anything else. It's not an explanation of, of how God acts, but it's an explanation of who God is. Holiness is God's essence. 
his godness, so to speak. And when we look at Scripture, Scripture tells us his holiness consists in the fact that God is love. This is what makes God unique. God is one of a kind because God is perfect love. There's nothing that adulterates or, or makes that uh, love imperfect. The whole point of the law in the Old, Old Testament was to enable us to be holy as God is holy. And so in the New Testament, Jesus was asked to simplify the law, to boil it down to its core. And he responds by saying, the essence of holiness, the essence of the law, the essence of being like God is love. Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. But our problem is sin. In the garden, Adam and Eve lived in the presence of God. They were holy. They were participating in God's holiness. But then sin entered the picture. And after that, all of the descendants of Adam and Eve were born with a sinful nature, what the Bible calls a carnal heart. Holiness, then, is the removal of that sinful nature. This is sanctification. God is removing our carnal nature, that sinful heart, and giving us a new heart. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, God tells us, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. But we often get the wrong idea of sin. We think of sin as a polluting substance within us. We kind of think of it as a toxin or a poison, a rottenness that must be cut off or cut out. And this is true to a certain extent. We picture holiness as God yanking out a bad tooth that's in us. But really, a better picture is to see sin as a fracturing, a breaking of the relationship between God and man. The sinful nature is a disorder, a perversion of what should exist between God and man. It's a perversion of this relationship. And then holiness is the restoration of that relationship. We talked about holiness as God's character, God's perfect love. When we are made holy, our sinful nature, this perversion of, of our relationship, it's restored so that we are able to experience God's love and respond to that love completely and perfectly and fully. Sin is the blocking of that love. It's a disruption that keeps us from loving God totally. Sin at its core is selfishness. Our love of self blocks us from receiving and returning God's love. And when we are made holy, this self-love is destroyed so that we can be brought back into relationship with God, so that we can experience God's love completely, and so that we can then love God completely in return. Uh, Jesus told us we love God because He first loved us. So where then does giving up our lives fit into this? 
Why is it necessary to give up our lives to experience holiness? Because the sinful nature at its core, this disruption of our relationship with God, is selfishness. Sin is loving ourselves more than we love God, putting this love for ourselves ahead of everything else. As long as this sinful nature is dominant in our lives, we cannot experience God's holiness. This self-love is a perversion, blocking our responding to God's love. So the only way to be holy, to have this self-love broken, to have a perfect love with God restored, uh, to have our, our whole beings reordered so that we are no longer bound by this selfish love, the only way to do this is to die to ourselves. We are to consecrate ourselves. Leviticus 20, verse 7 says, You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. To consecrate is to give ourselves to God, to set ourselves apart for Him, for His use. So Jesus is saying the same thing when He says that we have to give up our lives. The key to being holy, to being in the presence of God, is to consecrate ourselves It's to give up the life that we have, to give it over to God, to crucify ourselves so that we can experience new life in Him. Galatians 2.20, Paul says this by saying, I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So, Scripture makes it plain. We cannot keep this carnal, sinful nature We cannot allow this self-love to be dominant in our lives and expect to love God, expect to exist in holiness. Romans 8, 7 tells us the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and never will. As long as we insist on keeping our lives, on keeping this self-love front and center, we can never enter the kingdom of heaven and experience true life. Now, why would we not make this choice? Why wouldn't we be willing to give up this life in order to gain real life? Jesus asked this question by saying, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? In other words, Jesus is saying, Why would we be so foolish as to give up or to refuse to give up this life in order to get something that's far better. But we often fail to do this because we don't see the true nature of the world that we live in. We are fooled by a false reality. We set the wrong priorities. We cannot see the temporary, the transitory nature of this world. We cannot see that our lives here are only a blip in time. And so we put all of our priorities into making the most of this life. Now, what we end up doing is taking something that is not very valuable and treating it as if it were so. Now, it's interesting. We get an example of this when we look at the history of aluminum. Back in the, in the 1800s, aluminum was one of the precious metals along with silver and gold. In fact, it was one of the most costly of metals because 
aluminum was so difficult to get into a pure form. We can see this from Napoleon III. When he would host a banquet, he would give the guest of honor a tableware made out of aluminum. If you were one of his ordinary guests, you would have to make do with just plain old silver knives and forks. Only the special got an aluminum fork or an aluminum spoon. And we see it in our own country. When they were building the Washington Monument, they capped it off with a capstone made of pure aluminum because aluminum was so valuable. Now, in our day, aluminum is cheap. You know, we use aluminum to put our soft drinks in. We drink the soft drink and throw the aluminum away. Now, imagine if you had invested all of your wealth in aluminum, and then you come to find out it's going to become something so common that it's used to make our Coca-Cola cans with. You know, you put your money on the wrong horse. You backed the wrong horse. And this is what Jesus was saying. Why be so foolish as to put all of your emphasis, all of your, your focus on this life, when in the end, this life is not going to matter that much. It's going to be the life that comes. And so we want to make sure that we don't make the most of this life and end up missing out on the life to come. Jesus goes on to say, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, the Greek word for ashamed that's used here carries the meaning of disgrace or being personally humiliated. And the idea is a person is ashamed because they've misplaced their confidence or trust. They put their confidence in something or someone who turns out to be fake, and this makes them look foolish. Paul discusses a similar idea in Romans when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. What Paul is saying here is, I know the gospel is true. I know the gospel is not going to let me down. I know that my faith in this gospel is well-founded. And so Jesus is telling us, those who are, who are ashamed of me, those who feel like if they back me and they back my words, that somehow they will be disappointed. These people, in the end, will be the ones who lose out. They'll miss out on the kingdom of heaven because they haven't realized what is truly valuable. All they could see of the cross was the shame of the cross. Jesus saw beyond this to what the cross truly signified. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, For the joy set before him, he, Jesus, endured the cross, scorning its shame. For the religious authorities, the cross was a shame. The cross was the proof that Jesus was not the true Messiah. Their view was, if you are the Son of God, you would come down off that cross. The fact that you remain on the cross shows you are an imposter. Now, Jesus knew the cross was God's plan all along and that his obedience on the cross would be rewarded. Now, Jesus refers to this generation as adulterous. The idea is they have forsaken their true God. Now, when we are not ashamed of Jesus and of his words, 
It's more than an attitude that we take. It's not going around just saying we are not ashamed. But it involves staking our entire lives on the fact that what Jesus says is true. We are not ashamed, meaning we are convinced that Jesus is the true Messiah. And we are so confident that we put our money where our mouth is and we put his words into action in our lives. Paul says our culture sees the cross as foolishness. Our culture tells us the cross is something to make us ashamed, to tell us we are backing the wrong horse. But Jesus is telling us, do not be ashamed. And the one who is not ashamed of me, that is the one who will find true life. Now, we also see from how Jesus wise this up that the kingdom of God is not something that's far off in the future. The kingdom is present. It's here and now. Scripture says, And he, Jesus, said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Now, like us, the disciples were very curious about the end times and about what would happen. You know, what was in store for them. They wanted the inside information. And so they were continually asking Jesus about the end times. Now, here, I don't think Jesus is trying to be cryptic and give them some kind of secret information about the end times. I think Jesus is being straightforward with what he means. What he's saying is, the kingdom of heaven is not something that's far off in the future. Instead, this kingdom of heaven will be here during your lifetimes. You who are sitting here, you will see this take place. So the point is, the kingdom of heaven is something for us to experience now. It's something for us to take part in now, in our present lives, not something that we just dream about for the future. So, Jesus' message is, through me, you can hear the gospel, the good news that the kingdom of heaven is here. It has been incorporated, brought to life in this world. So, it's broken in upon us. But there's also a very real aspect in which the kingdom is not yet. And so, the kingdom is both now and not yet. It's here, but it's not in its final form. It will come in its final form someday. God has inaugurated His kingdom, and one day He will consummate it. He will bring it in its fullness. Jesus uses a very meaningful metaphor for this. He compares us, the church, to the bride of Christ. Christ is our bridegroom. In the Jewish tradition, the bride and the groom were engaged. Uh, Jewish marriage actually had two distinct ceremonies. There was the betrothal, where the marriage became legal. The bride price was paid but the bride would remain in the house of her father. And during this time, the groom would make everything ready to finish paying the bride price to, to get the home prepared for the bride. Uh, the groom would carry out all the details of the marriage contract. And then at some point, the second part of the marriage would take place. 
the groom would come, would take his bride, would take the bride back to his own home. So with Jewish weddings, there was a now, a betrothal, in which the wedding was made legal. It was a full wedding, but there was also a not yet. Uh, The bridegroom had not yet come to take the bride back to his own home. And so today, we live in the tension between the now of the kingdom and the not yet. We pray for healing, and we know that some will be healed, but we know that others will not be. We provide for the poor, while we know that, as Jesus said, the poor will always be with us. We work against systemic injustice in our society, against racism and prejudice and and other forms of injustice, while we know that these will not entirely be taken care of. We work to be peacemakers, knowing that war and strife will continue. So we have to live in the tension between the now and the not yet. We cannot become weary in well-doing. Galatians 6, 9, Paul writes to us, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We must maintain faith that the kingdom, the kingdom which has begun, eventually will be fully expressed. Over and over, Jesus tells them about the kingdom of God. And he specifically says that this kingdom now contains both wheat and tares growing together. But at some point, the kingdom will be weeded out. Now, in in Greek, the Greek word for kingdom, it can often mean realm, but many times, especially as used in Jesus' day, the, the Greek word would mean reign or rule. And so God's kingdom was the same as God's rule. The only way that Jesus tells us to be part of God's kingdom, to be part of his rule, is to surrender our lives. When we do this, when we give up our lives, then we are welcomed into God's realm, into God's rule. And that's when we gain true life. As long as we insist on keeping control of our lives, as long as we insist on having a Messiah in the form that we want the Messiah to be, in having a Messiah that allows us to do what we want and then basically just comes when we need him, we'll never have the full benefits of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus promised us an incredible life, both now and in the future. But we do this on his terms, not on ours. It requires us to give up our lives, to surrender, to consecrate ourselves, to lose our lives so that in the end we might find him. Let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kingdom, which has been inaugurated. You brought it into existence, and it's here and now, and we can be part of it. And we look for the not yet, for the time when this kingdom will be fully expressed, when you will return to earth and make all things new. And we ask that you would help us to surrender our lives so that we might become full members of your kingdom to have this life as fully as you promised it. We give you praise in your name. Amen.